Good morning, everybody. So if you don't know me, I am Rowan Fraser. I serve as one of the elders here. And it is my joy to open God's word with you. One thing you may not know about me is I hate moving. Now, let me clarify. It's not that I hate moving. It's, it's really what happens after you move. Because there's nothing like the feeling of getting into a new home, right? You walk in, you see the new walls. Everything that you've been waiting for and longed for is finally there. But after everybody leaves, after the pizza boxes are discarded, there's the sea of marked and unmarked boxes. And you realize the work is not really over. And over the days, actually, the weeks and the months, you are conquering each room box by box until you come to this tipping point. The tipping point where your everyday mess is a bit greater than the rooms and the boxes left to be unpacked. And you still see these rooms that are unfurnished and some corners that still you don't know what to do with. But you realize something. This place is ours. And it's really our home and we can rest. This experience is no different than Israel. Who, as we heard last week from Pastor Julian, that the land was divvied up among the different tribes and the peoples. And they're now at a place where they can rest. But really, how can they? There are still nations that hate them surrounding them. And there's still land to conquer. How can we rest when there's enemies outside and enemies within? When there are areas in our lives that still trouble us? We've been promised rest. Like the title of the series in Joshua is Rest. But I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of times I just feel tired. When people ask me how I'm doing, I usually say, I'm busy. Or my other default is, I'm tired. I know it's true that God has given us rest, but I feel tired. Don't you? I know that I should be at peace with everything, but I just feel exhausted. The battles keep coming. I try to conquer each room of my heart, unpacking and throw away every needless weight and every long-held sin. But I'm really left with this question. How can you and I rest in a sinful world? These two chapters in Joshua 20 and 21 will help you as it's helped me in preparation to find rest at home. So to truly rest in a sinful world, I must first recognize his mercy for all circumstances. Let's look at Joshua 20, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent 
or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. They shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. God instructs Joshua to select cities of refuge to those who commit manslaughter. This was God's intention to extend mercy to situations where accidental death occurred because of someone's actions. This was not premeditated murder or someone being killed in the heat of anger. Rather, it was for those circumstances where unknowingly, without intent or previous hate, someone died. It's like a car accident. Where someone dies, a life has been taken, but it, wasn't an, it, but it was an accident. Today we call it manslaughter. That's why here it's called, the person's called a manslayer and not a murderer. The family member of the victim could require retribution, sort of a balancing of a ledger, life for life, blood for blood. This provision was given in Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy. So this was not like this great aha moment for the Lord or he had forgotten this. This was long prepared mercy that he intended before the people even entered into the land for circumstances no one expected. This is part of being at rest. It is knowing that in all circumstances, God is merciful and will extend mercy. So God wants us to recognize his mercy in three specific ways. His mercy is reliable. To know that there were places you could run to if you were chopping wood. And imagine this, you're chopping wood and the ax that falls off and hits your friend. Or you're during a game and there is jostling for position and someone falls and fatally hits their head on the ground. It would bring a measure of rest to the heart of the manslayer to know that there was a city where they could find refuge. A city did that, that did not move, a place that policies didn't shift based on, gov on the government or the status of people, but the offender would find sanctuary in the reliable and sure mercy of God. There were several cities they could run to, six in total, and when arriving, you would meet with the elders of the city, and if you fit the criteria, you were taken in. Some of you have been harmed with un others' unintentional sins. David even recognized this. So in one of his psalms, he says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. It could be a conversation you have. You're just talking, and then suddenly it transfers into gossip. Or slander. The casual look that breeds lust. 
It's you're joking with friends or a spouse, and then that the joking turns into this sarcastic, hurtful dig. Or it's unresolved anger that leaks out in a harsh tone with a child or a husband. That's me. That's you. That's sin. But now what? Ask God to reveal it. Check with others. Then run. Run in repentance to the refuge provided in Christ. Run now. This mercy is available even for you, and his mercy is reliable. The city is word to be a constant reflection of God's mercy, and the fact that God's mercy could be depended on to be known as reliable because it rested on God. God's mercy is also righteous. If the avenger of blood chased the manslayer all the way to the city, the inhabitants of the city wouldn't throw the manslayer out or allow the avenger of blood to have his or her own way. Now, you're probably wondering, where is the fairness? Where's the justice? A person kills another, and then they get an all-expenses-paid vacation in a city. The accused would have no punishment, or so it seems. But in essence, this manslayer would come and have to stand trial to determine if the death was deliberate, malice-induced, or an accident. The city must righteously act in line with God's mercy. This place was not a place of freedom. It was a place of freedom from punishment of murder, but it wasn't a place of freedom from taking someone's life. The manslayer had to remain in the city of refuge, in sort of a minimum security prison of sorts, until the sentence was completed, which was when the high priest died. The manslayer was removed from family, friends, and home. Because even in God's mercy, God is still righteous and doesn't extend mercy to the hurt of others. If the manslayer left the city and was caught, he could be killed. No fine or ransom could speed up the sentence. It was fixed to the life of the high priest. I don't know about you, but um, I'm empathizing with that avenger of blood. Outside the city gate, crying for justice. Because it seems God's mercy has failed him. Some of you have been so hurt by another that whatever justice that has been administered seems unfair and light in comparison to the pain or the memory of it. But God's mercy is righteous. And he will not let a single tear or wound go unanswered, though it may feel that way. God's mercy never comes at the expense of his justice. Both meeting Christ who died 
for the guilty to satisfy divine justice so mercy could be extended. As a high priest's death signaled freedom for, of the offender, so Christ's death signaled freedom and rest to all who find refuge in him. Not only is God's mercy reliable and righteous, we need to recognize God's mercy is revolutionary. Look at verse 7 with me. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, and beyond the Jordan, east of, the, of Jericho. They appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These are the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Some of these cities were designated by Moses before the people even crossed the Jordan. Each city appeared on a hill so that the manslayer, as he's running to the refuge, could see it and it stood as a beacon of hope. So what? What makes God's mercy so revolutionary? It's that it's so sweeping in its scope. Did you see it there? The cities of refuge weren't, for ju- weren't just for the people of Israel. No. But it was also for the stranger, the foreigner, traveling among them. These are the very ones that rightfully were destined for annihilation. Who the people of Israel were conquering without no apparent mercy. How could the stranger access this mercy as if they had equal right to God? Truth is, they didn't. But God extends his mercy to those who have bowed their hearts and knees to him. Even when they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope. Sound familiar? Because that's us. His mercy is sweeping and revolutionary because it could be both reliable and righteous and still include you and me. God extends his mercies to those who intentionally sin, unintentionally sin, but greater still to you and I who intentionally sin daily, often, without a care, only hoping not to be exposed or that it hurts others or ourselves. There is no refuge, no hope without the truth that extends from everlasting to everlasting, that though judgment has been rendered, a verdict of guilty assured, Mercy is extended and in Christ stands secure. Let me repeat that again. There is no refuge, no hope without truth that extends from everlasting to everlasting. Though judgment has been rendered, a verdict of guilty assured, mercy is extended and in Christ stands secure. Your sins deserve judgment. Christ, the perfect Son, becomes flesh lives perfectly, and dies as a substitute to atone and become a city of refuge for you to flee from the just wrath that is coming. And make no mistake, it is coming. The wrath of God is coming because God is pure. God is holy, and he is a sin-hating God. And all those who do not bend the knee will receive that wrath. 
but he has made a way of refuge in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. No matter your ethnicity, if you're an abuser, idolater, liar, alcoholic, the list goes on and on. No matter who you are and what you have done, Jesus lives. And is calling you to recognize the only reliable, righteous, and revolutionary mercy found in him for every and all circumstances. So you can both rest eternally and right now in him. So run to his merciful refuge. Run. Don't wait till the end of this message. Run now. We must recognize his mercy in all circumstances to find rest in a sinful world, but we secondly need to remember his provision in all things. We need to remember his provision in all things. Now, the Lord had also provided inheritance to all the tribes, save one, the tribe of Levi. They were promised the Lord as their inheritance and cities with pasture land to sustain themselves as they tended to service of the tabernacle. So chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Then the heads of the fathers of the houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them, At Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we, ought, that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasturelands out of their inheritance. The Levites come to Eleazar the high priest and Joshua with all the heads to remind what God had already promised that he would provide. The request was no different than Caleb's or the daughters of Zelophehad to grant what was promised to them by God through Moses. The request wasn't hurried. It waited patiently till all the land was divvied out. God is meticulous and detailed in his provision, knowing here that our hearts will be at rest when we remember that God will provide everything we need. A sinful world with its trying times and seasons may distract us, but we are called to remember God will provide all things needed for us to find rest in him. Look at verse 7. Just for an example, because I'm not going to go through every, every um, land portioned out, but I'm hoping you get the gist from this pattern that I'm going to read. Verse 7, the Merarites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. These cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Out of the tribe of the people of Judah... And the tribe of the people of Simeon, they gave the following cities mentioned by name, which went to the descendants of Aaron, one of the clans of the Coathites, who belonged to the people of Levi, since, lot, since the lot fell to them first. They gave Kirith Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, along with the pasture lands around it. But the fields of the city and its villages had been given to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. 48 cities that included six cities of refuge are selected by lot, beginning with the descendants of Aaron, 
down to the fellow clans of the Quassites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. The pasture lands extended 2,000 cubits in each direction. So that's like 900 meters to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west from the city walls. Just like God's mercy didn't distort justice, God's provision didn't rob another's. The land Caleb's, the land Caleb took as possession of were the villages and the fields just outside of what was given to the Levites and the pasture lands in Hebron. God wasn't going to take what was promised, but he was going to give what he had promised. It wasn't going to invalidate someone else's territory. The provision of the city and pasture lands for the Levites was also not a forgotten detail, now recalled. This was intentional, as was the placement of each tribe and each city and each region and tribal land. This was the provision for each, for the Levites as well as the rest of Israel. One of the responsibilities of the Levites was to instruct the people in the law of the Lord. And like the placement of the tabernacle when they were traveling in the wilderness, they were supposed to act as the center for the people. The Levites' presence was to remind the people they were to worship God, and who they belonged to was the same person, God. They were to act as a guard against idolatry and a guide to right and faithful worship in a land surrounded by pagan nations. I remember after I first got saved, my best friend had this sister, and I don't know if you've ever had this, where she was always around. Like, we would go somewhere, she would pop up. She was like the modern-day pokeroo. She would be everywhere I was. And the thing that made it annoying was anytime I had this great fun idea, actually really a sinful idea, she was always there. And she would give me this look, this disapproving look that would kind of stop me in my tracks. And I was so upset. But looking back, I needed that. To tell you the truth, honestly, right today, I need that. You need that. Someone to speak to my conscience and remind me of God's holiness. The Levites were to, were to function in the same way, reminding Israel not to be swayed or consumed by the unbelieving, idolatrous nations and what they were doing. Or the activities of a sinful neighbor or whatever their sinful, wretched heart was contemplating by reminding them that God had lovingly provided everything they needed in himself. The verse is also true for the Levites. The Levites in the midst of the tribes were to show they were not above the people. Even though they served them, this was supposed to cultivate a genuine care for those they lived near. Think of this. The Levites were given to each tribe to keep Israel from unbelief. But also the Levites were placed in each tribal region to keep the Levites from pride. Today we have people who work, or I'm going to say labor, because it gives a more strenuous feel to it, day by day for the Lord, full time talking about the staff at our church. And we do well to remember that they are a gift of the Lord to us. 
they are God's provision to the people of God so that we are further able to rest in Christ and understand how to do that in a world of turmoil. With that in mind, I want to ask you to do three things, or rather continue doing them for our staff. Remember to pray for them. Remember in the beginning of the week to pray for Pastor Ian and Pastor Brian or Miles or Mark as they prepare and craft sermons. Or as their plan, or Laura as she's planning Redemption Kids lessons and trying to gather volunteers. Side note, we need more volunteers. Or Miles as he prepares the youth lessons. Or Mark as he's doing worship leading in preparation. Or Paul as he's connecting with people and counseling them. Or Karen as she's organizing financials and making sure things in the office are running smoothly. Pray that they do it as a calling and not as a profession. Pray for their spiritual health, their relational health. Pray for their marital health. Pray for their families, their children. Remember to pray for them. Remember to give to the continued health of the ministry. I get an opportunity to see you week by week, your faithful, loving giving. And I am so blown away by it. Remember to serve them by your friendship, your encouragement, and even your meals. They are not just super holy people. (laughs) They are people that bleed like you and me, people who laugh, people who like to have fun, people who need to be reminded that there are others who love them, not because of their position, but because of who they are. But God didn't just give the Levites to the people, but he gave the people to the Levites. So I want to charge the church staff and all who serve with three things as well. I want you to remember to be present. Your presence speaks volumes. And we are blessed, and I'm speaking on behalf of all of us, by worshiping and working with you. Remember to care for yourselves and for us, not just in words and just platitudes, but also in in your actions too. I'm likewise blessed to, to, to have the insight to see and hear what God is already working and doing in each of your lives. And lastly, remember your calling to serve. You are called to serve the almighty God, possessor of heaven and earth, to serve the sheep of his pasture well. To truly rest in a sinful world, we must finally rehearse his faithfulness to all peoples. We must rehearse his faithfulness to all peoples. So the last verses, verses 43 to 45, encapsulate why God has done all this. Conquering wicked people, securing a home for those wanderers, providing rest and ultimately showing Israel and all who would hear that they, like us, need rest and that we can rest on God's promises because he is faithful. 
Verse 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Notice the all the land, every, not one of all the enemies, given all, not one word of all the good promises had failed. All came to pass. See the totality of God's faithfulness in every circumstance and in everything. This to be sung. It's to be told to all peoples. In demonstrating himself as faithful, he is showing that he upholds his promises. No matter the passage of time, what he swore to the fathers and the patriarchs to Abraham still holds true. When the people of Israel took possession of the land and settled it, he gave rest on every side, again, as he swore to the fathers. How's this true, though? We read and heard in chapters 13 through 18 last week that there was still land to take possession of. And in the book of Judges, we keep seeing the tribes fail one after the other in driving out the inhabitants of the land. How do these passages sort of drive together? God faithfully did his part in providing land and victory over the enemies. But the people were not faithful in taking possession of it. He gave everything they needed to conquer and settle, but they needed to take responsibility. Our laziness, fearfulness, apathy, complacency in spiritual disciplines can directly be traced to our ability to enjoy and prosper in the rest God has provided in faithfulness. We are often too caught up with why we can't instead of why we must. What is God's ultimate goal in this? There's this quote by Piper that sums it up really well. At last, in his mercy, Piper says, God has brought Israel into the promised land and disposed, dispossessed the nations in his justice on their wickedness and in his grace on Israel's wickedness. Neither Israel nor the Canaanites deserve the land. God was acting in freedom. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. His aim, and this is, the, this is the crux of it, was that all peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that the Lord and that Israel would love him and cling to him with all their heart and soul. Through God's mercy and the provision of the land, we see God's faithfulness to Israel, that as he declared earlier in Joshua, that all the peoples may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. We are just like them. We are looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. Even though we don't see enemies like the Canaanites and the Amorites, but we do see a real Satan working, deceiving, a world system opposed to God and the sin within each of us. But God was and is always faithful. In Christ, Satan has been defeated. 
In Christ, the world overcome, and in Christ, the flesh no longer reigns. The Apostle Paul could say, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We rest that knowing that the war is over. There may be skirmishes, but that God has been faithful to his word to provide rest for our good and his glory. So in the midst of the latest upheaval and turmoil of a sinful world, I plead with you, don't complain. Don't be disquieted. Don't despair or be fearful. Rehearse God's faithfulness. King Solomon did it in 1 Kings 8, verse 56. Blessed be the Lord has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. So rehearse his faithfulness. And rest assured God has not failed. And don't keep it to yourself either. Tell others. Rehearse it and tell it to those who are weak and struggling. God has not failed. Rehearse it and tell it to the person who's ready to give up, who is trapped in fear. God has not failed. Rehearse it and tell it to those who are victorious to continue to be faithful because God has not failed. Tell the world, tell your neighbor, tell your relatives, God is faithful to his word for your rest and his glory. Now, no one can deny the chaos, depravity, and trouble that awaits us as we exit those doors. But we recognize his mercy in all its circumstances. We remember his provision in all things. And lastly, daily rehearse his faithfulness to all peoples so we can rest in Christ. Knowing that he has secured much more than cities and fields, but rather a heavenly land, a new earth, and also rest right now, right here. Because he is ever with us who believe, all will come to pass. As Unicord said to, in C.S. Lewis, Lewis's last battle, when all was over, he said these words, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up, come further in. Let us all enter the rest that Christ gives and go further up and further in. Let's pray. Father, it is because of you and what you have done that we can even claim rest, that we can find a refuge for our weary and tired souls. We acknowledge that this world is not not our home. We acknowledge that there is sin on every side, but we do a greater acknowledgement that Christ is victorious. And because of his victory, we can find rest. We can find rest because of his mercy. We can find rest because of his provision. We can find rest because of his faithfulness. Help us to take these in. Help us to rest and not be weary in a land. Help us to not be restless at home. For your great glory, O God, and for our good. Amen.